On the podcast today, Carol Todd, the mother of Amanda Todd, was my guest to talk about the court case that has resulted in a guilty verdict for Aidan Coban. And Harinder Mahil, Order of BC recipient from Coquitlam. He's a lifelong champion of human rights. Five decades ago, he was a farm worker who helped get farm laborers basic rights in BC, which led to the formation of the Employment Standards Act. So you can tune in for our conversation. Along with, we talked about the state of magic. Yes, magic. As a BC resident becomes president of an international magic association. But first, civic elections are coming very soon, so it's a bit odd to have the MPA's top candidate, John Cooper, bow out. Well, John Cooper abruptly stepped down as NPA's mayoral candidate just the other day, and with just over two months to go until that October 15 civic election, the party has indicated it's still looking and still aiming to field a candidate for mayor to replace Cooper. Joining me now is Stuart Prest, SFU political scientist. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning. All right. So I think a lot of people didn't see this coming. So what are some possible reasons behind Cooper's resignation? Uh, It's a good question. Of course, uh, we didn't uh, see his uh, appointment as a mayoral candidate for MPA either coming. It was announced quite suddenly. So this is a a party that has uh, had some issues with uh, transparency for for some time. And so I guess the... uh, one possibility is that there there was tension uh, behind the scenes between uh, Mr. Cooper and, and the uh, board of the NPA. Uh, another is uh, quite possibly that uh, uh, the, the, the party did not seem like it was going to be a major factor in this coming fall election. And, uh, and Mr. Cooper made the decision that he didn't want to be running as, as an also ran. I mean, it is a, a remarkable uh, fall from... Uh, from grace for for the NPA, which has uh, been a dominant force in uh, Vancouver politics for 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 decades, and and at this point they are running far behind all of the front runners uh, in the polling for for the mayorship in the, the the coming election. So he may just have decided it was time to to hang up the skates and and, and go home. Yeah, the deadline to be added to the ballot through the city of Vancouver's process is very soon. It's September nine. So, what is this going to mean for the race? Uh, well, it's not entirely clear that the MPA are going to be able to to find a replacement in time, or they they may find someone who uh, is just parachuted in at the the last minute without a lot of of, of support behind uh, uh, them. And so, this really makes it difficult for. Uh, the, uh, the the party to to field any kind of uh, of effective ca- campaign in in this election, uh, and because the mayoral candidate uh, is is such a a front runner, such a, a symbol for the the party as a whole, that can affect their ability to elect any any councillors as well. There seems to be some uh, problems with transparency with the NPA. Do you think that voters pick up on that? It's a good question. It's one that I've uh, been wondering about for some time because there's this uh, something of a disconnect between where the MPA seems to be as a party and in its reputation in, in Vancouver politics, where, as uh, I was talking about, it is this force in, in uh, Vancouver politics for decades uh, going back. And and yet it seems like among those who follow uh, politics, uh, the, the city more closely, it, it is a shadow of its former self. The, the board is uh, 
recently been been replaced. There have been allegations that it has that the members of that board have really taken a shift towards a, a much farther right position. And and many of those who had been associated with the party, including its its own councillors, uh, Lisa Donato, Colleen Hardwick, Rebecca Bly, uh, Sarah Kirby Young, they have all uh, left the party behind. And so it is it is in some ways quite a different party from what it was just just a few years ago. And so it's not entirely clear what the NPA stands for. Many of those uh, candidates, many of those councillors have gone on uh, to, to run with, with different groups, whether it's Ken Sims ABC or, or Carlene Hardwick forming a, a team, uh, a new team party uh, as well. That seems to be taking up a lot of the energy and, and political space formerly occupied by the NPA. Yeah, it's hard to believe that the NPA uh, used to be a dominating force in Vancouver civic politics because things have changed so much. Uh, And the last time they won a majority in city council and the mayoral seat was in 2005 under Sam Sullivan, which uh, that that was ages ago. So what is the future of this party? Uh, Yeah, it it has a party that uh, was was competing well in in elections. It had uh, uh, just about a majority on this last council, but that seems like that was uh, almost something something of a throwback where this party uh, was in the process of uh, of breaking apart internally, and that really picked up speed during this council where there was a a, a glaring chasm that emerged between the the councillors who were elected, who were more centrist in their political views, and this this board that, uh, again, tends to be shrouded in exactly what it's trying to do. There was no uh, consultation when it appointed Mr. Cooper as the mayoral uh, candidate. It was just announced. And so this seems like it's a party that is uh, uh, more than just at the crossroads. This isn't a moment where it's going to pick a direction. This is a, a party that seems to be on the verge of no longer being relevant in Vancouver politics. It, it's not clear how it finds a path back to relevance at this point, given that so many who would have been supporting it in previous elections, the the business community, those who are uh, uh, interested in, in, say, an inclusive Vancouver, but one that is more uh, tax-friendly, those kinds of uh, issues, or even uh, those who may be uh, resistant to to housing development, they're going to find different uh, homes in the political spectrum uh, with a party like uh, Team or a party like ABC. And so, uh, the the future does not look good for the MP at this moment. Yeah, and what about where it is on the left slash right spectrum? How has it alienated or attracted people based upon that? Well, this is uh, one of the, the strange sorts of, uh, of turns of, of this uh, party and and the movement uh, of the, the the board organizing it, where it seems like the the, the party. Uh, elected a number of members to its its board that uh, included at one point a former supporter for uh, Donald Trump and uh, staff associated with with right wing media like uh, like rebel media and so this was a real shift from a party that really tried to be a a big tent party that would welcome members of the political spectrum from from the center over over to the right to a party that uh, many were increasingly worried uh, but again, that lack of transparency was hard to exactly say what was going on. But was worried this was a party that was really shifting to the the much farther right of the, the the political spectrum, and I think that's one of the reasons that led. And indeed, that was uh, uh, one of the the main reasons that uh, the the former NPA councillors gave when when they uh, left the party. Stuart, I follow this stuff closely because I'm in the media, and you follow it closely because you're a political scientist. But how much do you think uh, regular Vancouverites are following the civic elections? 
Well, I think we're seeing, we just saw a poll come out this last week that, that indicated that some people are paying attention, but there's a, a huge uh, component of the population, uh, something like four in 10 Vancouverites, have not made up their minds yet. And so I think what we're seeing is that the, those who follow along are, are going to be aware of some of those issues, but there is a, a significant portion of the population that is just uh, perhaps starting to tune in to, to the municipal debate right now. And so they're going to be, have to be playing uh, checkout because a lot has happened in the last four years. And so if you're the, the kind of voter who just uh, dips in just around election time, uh, this uh, this camp, this uh, uh, scenery of, of the campaign is going to be much different than, than it was just uh, just four years ago. And, and I think that's going to perhaps create some confusion among some voters. It's going to be really incumbent on uh, folks like us and, and the candidates themselves for the other parties to really make it clear to voters what do they stand for and to try to fill in some of those details so that voters can come and make an informed choice because uh, this is a going to be a, a very uh, busy election season and, and it is a very crowded field. So there is a, a lot to unpack there. Yeah, it's also such an important election, I find, and, and you nailed it right there with just saying we're looking at a very different Vancouver and different issues and prioritizing those issues uh, than it was four years ago. Stuart, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure. I hope we have more of these conversations as, as we get closer to election day. You betcha. Yesterday, Aidan Coban was found guilty on all five counts related to the online sextortion of Amanda Todd, a name we have come to know so well over the last 10 years. This included extortion, harassment, communication with a young person to commit a sexual offense, possession of child pornography, and distribution of child pornography. Carol Todd is Amanda Todd's mom. She joins us on the line now. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. How are you? Carol, it's really good of you to give us some time this morning. Thank you for that. I'd like you to take us to the moment when the guilty verdict was announced. What went through your mind and just what was that whole experience like? I was just thinking about that. Um, And it keeps replaying in my head. Um, Of course, my concern was that on some of the charge counts, it would become not guilty and um, I was most concerned about the child pornography charges, but when the jury foreperson um, said guilty out loud, it was just my heart. Just, uh, it, it, it's really hard to explain, but I was just so happy to hear those words. Were you expecting to hear them? I was hoping to hear them. Um, I don't know what I was expecting, Um but I'm so glad that um, the jury was able to sift through all the evidence. Um, it was it was just incredible. I'm really glad that I was able to attend every day for the nine weeks and hear and see everything that the, the jury saw and heard. Um, my my biggest concern was there was so much evidence and testimony that um, it would be impossible to sift through and, and organize, but. Crown did a really excellent job in bringing it all together in their closing arguments. Yeah, and then guilty on all five accounts. Did you ever think this day would come? Honestly, uh, I had my doubts through the whole process. It, it's been um, when you when you look at the the testimony, right? Evidence. Um, this all started for Amanda in two thousand and nine when she was alive, of course. And um, 
do I have any regrets? I, I, I wish I had pushed harder back then um, in order to get something accomplished, I guess. Um, and then she died in 2012. Um, and then Aiden Sylvan was arrested in January of 2014. And it was a big process to, you know, lay the charges, get the um, extradition treaty signed off um, by the federal government. Um, and of course, Mr. Coban appealed through the whole process. So there were, there were doubts in my mind that this would happen. But um, at each step, when we heard that, you know, you got a little further, it was, it was hope. It was a lot of hope. And then um, when he finally arrived here and the court process started, um, it gave me a lot of confidence that it would indeed happen. There were a lot of delays because the trial was originally slated to start October of last year, and then it got postponed to January of this year, and then it got postponed to June of this year. Um, so there, there was a lot of worry in there for me. Um, but it started on June the 6th, and here we are today. Yeah. Carol, I don't know if you can truly know this, but as the guilty verdict was announced, a lot of people heard it and they were relieved for you, complete strangers. What has it been like to go through the traumatic events that you have from losing your daughter in 2012 up until now so publicly? Because grieving is a very private experience often, but for you, everything's played out before the public eyes. It has. Um, And... Do I have any regrets about that? No. Um, although some people would think that, um, would think the opposite. That, um, And I have gotten comments on my social media that, you know, I was seeking attention or, or whatever, but... Um, That's ridiculous. Amanda, and Amanda put a video out to share her story, and that was all part of when the publication ban was in effect, and I decided to to try and fight yeah. that one, right? Yeah. Um, and I truly believe that Amanda wanted her story heard out there. Um, and this is what happened to her, like when you go through the video again, and there was bullying, cyberbullying, mental health, um, the exploitation. Yeah. And, and those things are meant to be out in the public because for me, myself, as a you know, strong advocate, um, and an educator, I believe that telling real stories help make change oh, yeah. in, in the public yeah. in the public eye. And I've received so many um, stories of um, parents who have heard the story. They started the conversations with the young person, and the young person all of a sudden, you know, admitted to the parents that I was bullied or right. I was exploited online, and it, it led to getting them support or going to the police or whatever. So yeah. um, I think this, this is what something that Amanda wanted, right? By first of all, sharing. And, and when she shared her video, I did, I did give her heck for doing that because I thought, why are you putting yourself out in, in the public like that? Right. After what you've gone through. And she just said, I want others to know. And I want, I want others to know that they can get help. So yes. Yeah. That, those, those words, drove me forward. And um, yes, I, you know, 10, 10 years of, 
of sharing her story out there in different parts of the world. But it, it's all worth it because if, if we can, if Amanda's story can change one life, which it has, um, she would be, I, I believe, as her mom, she would be so um, proud to hear that. I'm sure, I'm sure. The trial hinged on the identity of what the Crown has called the sextortionist that used 22 online aliases to sexually blackmail Amanda over four episodes before she took her life in 2012. And the Crown argued that one person operated all those accounts and that it was Coban. What your daughter went through a decade ago seemed, I think, at the time uh, to be fringe to folks, maybe even rare. It, it seemed far-fetched. But I've done stories on child trafficking, and, and it happens commonly. Uh, sextortionists uh, have been operating in the field for a long time. It's very common. You know, a user can set up various accounts. Uh, there's more sophisticated software to mask identity. So when you talked earlier about regret that you didn't do something earlier, say in 2009... I think you could be easier on yourself just given that it was a different time and our awareness of what can happen online now has changed so much. So I wonder, just my last question for you is, what do you want people, the general public, to take away from all of this? Well, in in this particular chapter of Amanda's story on sextortion and exploitation and human trafficking, I want people to understand that this isn't something that should be taken lightly. Um, it, yes, it has been, you know, 12 years since Amanda started and, and her exploitation occurred on YouTube and Facebook and Skype, which um, we know that young people don't necessarily use those platforms anymore. They've moved on to other platforms. But it's not about chasing the platforms. It's about chasing the, the and explaining the behaviors that happen online and and what needs to be talked about in terms of, privacy. So you talk to a young person and, you know, if someone asks you to share share images or um, private information, you need to really think about um, if I share it, what's going to happen? Yeah. Um, what could happen? And, and sextortion right now is, is in the media. Um, the RCMP are talking about it. The FBI are talking about it. it, it it's something that we all have to dig a little deeper and, and talk about and learn more about because so as we know with Amanda, I mean, 12 years ago, it's so it can occur so easily um, and, and in a blink of an eye, and it could have a lifetime of ramifications, as we know. So, Carol, you know, that, that's all the it. time we have for today. But I wanted to thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, this chapter of Amanda's story with us. Thank you for having me. A Coquitlam human rights activist was unveiled as an Order of British Columbia recipient. Order of BC is the province's highest form of recognition. It will be given out in a ceremony this fall to Harinder Mahil, who joins me on the line now. Good morning. Good morning, Radu. Mr. Mahil, congratulations on being selected for the Order of BC. I wonder if you could take us to the moment where you found out the news. Well, they came to me a couple of weeks ago, and I was, uh, I mean, there had been some calls to my friends to check me up. <laughs> so oh. <laughs> somebody obviously nominated me at some point in time. Yeah. And then they told me that I should just keep it confidential until they uh, make the announcement. So I, it was a surprise for me when I received the call. 
Oh, and when you found out that, yes, indeed, you are getting the Order of BC, what did, what did that recognition mean to you? Well, it, it, it's extremely humbling. Um, you know, I, what I've done or not done is for others to judge, but I strongly believe that a positive change can only be made by organizing, being part of groups. So I've always worked in organizations, whether they're trade unions, anti-racism coalitions, or community associations. So it's, I believe that this honor is for all activists who are trying to make this society a better place for all of us. So earlier in the show, we were letting listeners know what you have achieved uh, in your time in BC. So you came here when you were 19 years old. How did you make your way to BC? What was that experience like before you started working as a a farmer and working towards advocacy for farmers? Uh, You're correct. I came to Canada in 1970 at the age of uh, 19. Uh, the first job, like most immigrants, is, you know, trying to find whatever you can do. And that was working in farms in Abbotsford area. Uh, from there, um, I found a job in Isamil and, uh, you know, then became active in the union. And that was just my starting education, being uh, a part of a union where they educated me about the workers' rights. You were key in organizing for farmers' rights, along with uh, a small group of other laborers. You were uh, advocating to get washrooms in farms for laborers. Uh, farmers faced so much abuse. Uh, at Our laborers who worked for farmers faced so much abuse at that time in the 1970s. The discrimination back there sounds, it sounds awful back then. What did you do to muster the courage to fight back against the system? I mean, basically, uh, the farm workers at that point of time were not even considered workers. They had no protections under any labor legislation. So the first issue for us was to make sure that farm workers were recognized as workers so they had some protection under the Employment Standards Act. It was so bad, Raji, that even if somebody was not paid their, their wages uh, after working long hours and hard work, uh, there was no, you know, they, the the person, the worker could not go to a government agency saying, I have not been paid. They had to go to small claims court. So how many farm workers could go to a, to court of law and start a lawsuit against their employer? So that, you know, that was the f- first thing was starting a campaign that workers, farm workers should be recognized uh, no differently than other workers. And so you're 71 now. In your years, you helped change the course of history uh, and many lives after by helping bring about the Employment Standards Act and and the formation of farmers' unions. What would you tell your younger self? What would you tell, say, a a 20-year-old her in there? Well, I mean, basically what I would say is, first of all, to to educate uh, about your rights and educate yourself and then educate people about the rights and then organize. So being part of a collective, uh, if you want to make some change, it wasn't in me. There were many people like me who came together. Uh, so, it, you know, that's how you bring about change uh, is just, you know, being part of organizations and uh, advocating people about their rights and, and responsibilities. Well, we have rights in this society. We also have responsibilities and we they go hand in hand. And what did you get to witness firsthand from advocating for farm workers? What, what changes, practical changes did you see in your time doing that? 
Well, I mean, at, at this point, I mean, if same sort of thing was to happen today, uh, you can go to a Ministry of Labor, Employment Standards Branch, saying, you know, I have been badly treated, I have not been paid my wages, and this is what happened to me, and somebody from the government uh, will go and investigate, which, uh, which never used to happen you know, back in 1970s. And, I mean, basically, you know, there are some protections as well under the, you know, workers' compensation uh, legislation, which wasn't there before. I mean, so now, uh, you know, in many ways, um, farm workers are protected, uh, you know, which, which, is, which is, you know, um, significant. I mean, in, not only was the issue, you know, it was also who the farm workers were, primarily immigrant workers, and so there was issue of discrimination as well. Uh, again, you know, it, I think we have come a long way in uh, that uh, past 50 years. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for giving us some time this morning, and thank you for your service to making this province better. Well, it, uh, I think it, uh, all activists, you know, um, I, I share this honor with all activists who are trying to make this, uh, this society better for all of us. Thank you for your interest uh, in, in, in this issue. Thank you, Mr. Mahill. Well, there is an association for everything, including global magic. And a Surrey man is now the head of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. IBM is known as the world's largest magic organization. And over the last hundred years, only eight Canadians have led the office. And Billy Shway has become one of them. Billy joins us on the line now. Good morning, Billy. Good morning, Raji. Well, what does becoming the president of the International Brotherhood of Magicians mean to you, and what does it entail? Uh, it, it's such a big honor just to be at the helm of such a great organization. Uh, it's an organization that's given me so much since I was like 11. So it, it means a lot that I get to give back to the community uh, that's basically made my entire career. And a, a lot of the... Um, the duties entail just being a good ambassador for the uh, for magic, not just like the I, not just the IBM, but like for magic as a whole, and just fostering um, the growth of the youth coming in as well. Okay, why is that key? Uh, because it, uh, now that organiza- uh, like fraternal organizations are kind of aging out, um, it's always it's good to bring in new blood. Okay, so what does IBM like do though? Like, how does it foster that growth of a love of magic? So, what we have been doing is uh, creating new ways for youth to compete. Uh, we just had uh, a young lady uh, named Anya uh, win first place in stage and close up. Uh, she is uh, the one of the very few. Uh, young members who are who who've done that in our history. Okay, so you mentioned eleven years old. So I know you started doing magic when you were a kid. How did you get into it, and and what hooked you? Uh, I started doing magic um, by going to a, a, a summer camp. It wasn't like a magic camp; it was a explore Vancouver camp, and they took us to Granville Island. I will, our local magic shop is there. Went upstairs, went to the magic shop, clowning around, and saw some magic tricks at the counter from Joe. Uh, and I was hooked. 
<laughs> I love it. Do Okay, this is a question that maybe is beyond the IBM, but I'm wondering if magicians in a kind of association or society if share secrets. Do they tell each other how magic tricks are done? Uh, we do. Uh, we do share our trade with, with each other. Um, we, ha- we host lectures uh, locally and also internationally. As the IBM, we have our annual convention uh, where like five to 800 magicians gather in the city wow. and we do lectures. We, we put on shows uh, for the community and workshops, anything you can imagine. It's just like any other trade. Wow, that's a lot. Five to 800. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So is magic still alive? Like how's the industry in terms of popularity? Uh, I believe it's still very much alive, as you can see. There's um, uh, Penn Teller's Fool Us on uh, on TV. There's it, it's thriving on social media. You can see all of the TikTok uh, magicians on there. There's there's a lot of stuff going on, and it's really good for magic right now. What's your favorite trick? <laughs> My favorite trick in general? Yeah. Um, it would have to be. Oh, this is so hard. There's so many good things out there. <laughs> Can I be honest with you, Billy? Of course. So I ran this, uh, my, my uh, kindergartner, my six-year-old, she loves magic. And I often ask her, she'll ask me, like, what stories are you doing on your show? I'll tell her what I'm doing, who I'm interviewing. She's never been as excited as when I told her I'm interviewing you. She was so thrilled. And she was like, okay, let's talk about the questions. Here, I have a great one. We need to know his favorite trick. And I was like, of course we do. So, like, what trick do you just, you get such a kick out of? Um, Oh, I've always loved um, David Copperfield's Flying Illusion. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, it, it just it just gives that that feeling of wonder when you see something that is literally impossible happening right there. <laughs> yeah, and it's that feeling of wonder that captivates people with magic, isn't it? That's right, and that's why I do magic. That's I, love, I do it for the smiles and sharing that feeling that I get when I watch magic. Yeah, and so you still experience that, hey? Mm-hmm, I do. So you are one of only eight Canadians to have ever led this international brotherhood of magicians. Um, what are you going to try and do while you're president? Um, what, what I'm trying to do now is uh, actually bolster our social media. Um, we, we, we just brought in a lovely young lady, Gabriella Lester. Uh, she is She's a magician in her own right. She was just at the Magic Castle performing, and she's stepped in to help us out. <laughs> so she she's spearheading all of our social media on that. And to you, what is the ultimate in doing magic? Like, what is the just, like, peak experience? Hmm. I don't know if there's a peak experience for, for doing magic. It, it, it's all. I, I do it because I love it, and I'm already, I'm already there, and I, <laughs> and it's just being able to perform, and like I said, sharing, sharing that wonder. That's nice that you feel you're already there, that you're appreciating the experience as much as you do. I wonder, uh, because I don't follow magic very closely, although I have started on TikTok to see more and more magic tricks performed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder, is David Copperfield still uh, the god of magic? Is he still the ultimate? 
we ju- uh, we as the IBM just uh, awarded him the greatest of all time uh, at our last convention. Oh wow, wow! Mm. So it's still. And why do you think that he was so great? Is so just the a phenomenal magician? He was extremely innovative um, w- with everything that he's done, like walking through the Great Wall of China, making the Statue of Liberty of dis- like disappear, like. W- where would you think of such grand illusions in magic and tr- and, tr- and be like, hey, you know, today I'm going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear and then, and then do it. Yeah, yeah, his creativity and innovation. Mm-hmm. How much a part of magic is that today uh, versus people rehashing old tricks and redoing stuff we've seen before? It's huge. Uh, being creative is such a big part of of magic, and that's how we're growing, um, keeping up with the times. Like we will, uh, magicians will rehash old tricks, but bring, by bringing them up to, oh, what's the word? Um, not par. Um, bring up the same. Bring up to date. There we go. Uh, bring bring the magic tricks up to date. So like things like you would see with maybe like chalkboards, or like old writing routines. Um, like you, you would see maybe iPads being used now. You'll see a lot of that. Actually, there's a lot of people using iPads and new technology uh, in their routines, yeah. as well as using creating new methods and being on the edge of that technology and being able to incorporate. Okay, like updating. And then in terms of the actual performance, when somebody is on stage and they're going through a routine, like what is the prep for that kind of a routine? Is it akin to like how a stand-up comedian sits down and writes and reworks uh, their skit for ages before they go on stage? Is it it similar to that in any way? What's it like? It's it's very similar to that. Uh, Like I know from personal experience, I have some, some routines that, involve a heavy script and so I'll be sitting there rehashing the script trying to figure out how to make it flow better uh, as well as not just the script itself uh, we have like the techniques we have to constantly practice and refine and make sure that it's as smooth as we can get it that's so cool Billy I've learned some new things from talking to you today so thanks for coming on our show and explaining that, that stuff about magic to me Of course, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.